Hello, welcome to Beastly Theories. I'm your host, Eddie McGrath. Tonight we have a very special guest, one of the finding of the team, researcher, speaker, foot fetishist, and all-round nice guy, Cliff Barrackman. Cliff, hi, welcome to the show. Yeah, thanks for having me on. Now, I'm really happy that you're here. Uh, we met at CryptoCon in Kentucky last year, and um, we were all speaking, and I had a store facing you in Bobo. And I remember at the time thinking, oh my God, I'm not going to sell a thing. <laughs> Look at the competition. But, um, you know, it was, it was a nice joint uh, venue and everybody really, really connected there. Now, I do have some questions for you tonight. For the people at home, they may be things that they would like to, to hear from you. So I'm going to try and keep it as, um, as light as possible. Now, we recognize you as one of the team of Finding Bigfoot. May it rest in peace. You know, I really love that show. Um, but just let us know how your obsession for Bigfoot first took hold and how you, um, how, uh, what were you doing before you, you got into TV? Oh, well, my obsession with Bigfoot probably started back when I was a little boy in the 1970s. Um, I remember uh, thinking about Bigfoots to some degree, you know, when I was probably, you know, in kindergarten, so four or five years old. Um, uh, we would go camping every summer in uh, Sequoia National Park. Uh, my father would take the whole family camping. And I remember like looking for footprints and stuff because uh, there were some bears around. And I would find bear footprints and things like that. And I remember thinking about the Bigfoot thing. I mean, I wasn't, obviously I wasn't as into it as I am now or anything like that, but you know, it was on my mind. It was somewhere back in my little, uh, you know, my little germinating brain. Um, and I've always been interested in unusual, strange things, you know, like, cause I grew up on in search of and all those sort of mm. documentaries in the 1970s. Uh, but really, I guess I've always been drawn to unusual things cause I'm kind of a weird guy myself. I'm, ex I'm pretty eccentric with strange interests and a quirky sense of humor and weird tastes and that sort of thing. But I guess it was when, uh, I, I never really took it seriously as a avenue of inquiry until I was in college when I stumbled across a book that was a, uh, a collection of journal articles um, written on the Sasquatch by anthropologists and other folks and stuff. And I started realizing, oh my gosh, there's actually real work being done on this. And so this is one of those weird sort of uh, things I was, I was interested in, but I felt I could actually do something about it um, because I was already backpacking and camping. So I just kind of put this on the list of things to do while I was in the woods. Because mm. at the end of the day, Bigfooting is pretty much camping with a purpose. So uh, that I kind of still hold that um that model today i suppose um but i you know i i would uh at the time when i was a young man i i think i, did, I stumbled across that book in maybe 1992 or three or four or something like that somewhere in there and i started reading everything i could just digesting the literature essentially which is what i would recommend anybody to do um you know get off of youtube and stuff but like read some books you know mm. yeah, that's where the real information lies um and i started camping in places where bigfoots had been seen before um, uh, that's a, still a good strategy, honestly. With so, friends uh, alone? Both, both. In my early days, I'd mostly do alone, uh, or I mean, sorry, mostly do with friends. But as uh, years went on or whatever, uh, I would start going alone because I had more time off. You see, I, I, uh, at the time I was working in fishing tackle stores and, um, I was a teacher's aide in Southern California because I grew up in Long Beach, California. Um, and because of, you know, during the summers I would 
be fishing all the time and working in the stores and stuff. And during the winter and, and you know, fall and spring, I would be in the classroom, essentially. And eventually I decided, well, you know, I got to do something for a living. So I might as well like, be a teacher because I was already pretty good at it. I already understood it because being a teacher's aide in public schools and stuff. And I'd have summers off to go bigfooting and fishing and stuff. And that's kind of what I did. So I, I would have, you know, 10 weeks off during the summer. And a lot of other people just didn't have that kind of time off from work. So I ended up going alone a lot. Um, and then I, I was an elementary school teacher. I taught uh, fourth, fifth, or sixth grade, which is basically, you know, 10 years old, plus or minus one, um, right. until until the television show came and grabbed me. And then wow. that's what I've been, you know, so now I've been like a full-time Bigfooter since like 2010 or 11 or something. So teaching 10-year-olds, I think uh, the decision to become a Bigfoot uh, researcher after that full-time, it's not really as brave teaching 10 year olds right it was an easy choice <laughs> as a it's switch. a different kind of bravery yeah yeah a different kind uh, of monster you're dealing with well, definitely definitely at least um you know you could do something about it possibly if you were confronted by the other monster uh what now what i was um you talked about your weird obsessions how you got into this and it just seems like essentially you were always a big footer and you had careers that kind of Past the time until eventually it, it happened in a more commercial way for you. One of the running jokes I really liked on Finding Bigfoot was about your foot fetish. Mm -hmm. So yeah. um, I know that's a big element of uh, Bigfoot research. So what's it about the footprints and casts specifically that you find so compelling? Well, it, it's it's hard empirical evidence. I think that's the most fantastic thing about it is because all skeptics, you know, are always kind of frankly running their mouth off about stuff about how there's no evidence for Bigfoot. And they're just absolutely incorrect. They're showing off their own ignorance. Now, they yeah. may not be stupid people, but if they're ignorant of the data, they're not aware of it or they're ignoring it, ignoring, ignorant, right? Mm -hmm. um, they're ignorant. There, there is that element there. Um, in fact, I find that the the most uh, the, the loudest of skeptics generally are the least well informed on the subject. Um, but you can look at these footprint casts and see things in them, and I can and I can hand them to somebody else, and they can observe it and use their own expertise to analyze it as well. That's hard evidence. That's mm -hmm. evidence that is empirical. It's not subjective, like a sighting report. Because sighting yeah. reports are, are obviously the most plentiful bits of evidence, but they're not very good evidence because you're having to deal. There's a lot of filters between me, the investigator, sure. and the Bigfoot. You know, the observer um, sees the thing. How good of an observer is that person? What, you know, what lighting conditions, distance, all that stuff. And then we come into language difficulties. How good of a linguist? Like how, how, how able is the witness to put his or her experience into words and convey them to me? And how good am I? You see what I mean? There's so many filters. Definitely. I, I do but, see that. But and not, I think, with a, uh, not with the cast. That's the important mm. thing. With a footprint cast, you have a, there's a, there's, you know, you have a photograph of the thing in the ground, you have the cast in your hand, you can weigh that on its own merit. And that's why the footprint and handprint and butt print and all the other impressions are so important. And, um, and, and what type of things, if, if you were, um, and I'm sure you've seen thousands of alleged Bigfoot-like prints from around the globe, probably, being your position. Uh, I was wondering, from the perspective here, uh, have you ever seen anything that's large, but with a more human-shaped foot, rather than the the square, broad-edged uh, heel prints that we associate with American Sasquatch. Um, some well, Sasquatch is just like human beings or any other large primate. Basically, has a, a wide genetic variety. 
so we would expect some of their feet to be wider than others and more narrow than others. But generally speaking, they all have pretty wide feet and they are kind of blocky in their, in their morphology. Um, I, I've seen uh, where we run into problems and I've had this discussion with Dr. Meldrum mm. are the foot, the footprints that range be usually between nine or 10 inches and maybe 12 or 13 inches. Um, there seems to be a gap in the data in, in that particular range. And the suspected Sasquatch footprints that we have in that range are, do strongly resemble human prints. Now, are they human prints? Cause that's how big a human print really should be, you know, nine mm-hmm. to 13 inches somewhere in there. Or, or are they Sasquatch prints and maybe like a pubescent Sasquatch goes through a phase where their foot hasn't widened out yet. I, I don't, I don't really know. I've had that discussion with, uh, with Jeff on a number of occasions and we're kind of going, well, until more data comes in, we have to wait and see. Sure, sure. I mean, he mentioned that once or twice about the uh, Russian Almasty. Uh, they mm. had a theory about that being some type of Neanderthal, and oh, perhaps yeah. that was the reasoning for the the different uh, morphology uh, of the but foot. But I haven't. I have an Almasty cast in my collection um, from Jeff's collection, uh, and uh, he, he just gave it to me a few months ago. And it is wide. It, it is wider than what I would expect a human print to be for that size. And I, I, to me, that makes sense, though, because Neanderthals were more robust in their makeup. And I think that there, I believe that there's probably some uh, direct connection between the surface area of the bottom, like the plantar surface of the foot, and the weight of the animal. Um, and I, I think that's why Sasquatch feet are so wide and they, they're partially, you know, they don't have an arch and all that sort of stuff. It's a, and, and I believe that I have to go back and check, but I believe Krantz wrote about that in his uh, book. Uh-huh, I see. And um, in regards to the footprints, uh, when you're looking for the valid, genuine footprints, when you've observed something out in the field and you were involved in the London tracks, weren't you? Yeah. In, in uh, cataloging those what type of things are, are you looking for in those footprints? What would convince you? I am looking at genuine um, Sasquatch footprints. Um, variety. A variety has a lot to do with it. Um, like the London prints ended up being hoaxes. It took me a while to get to that conclusion, but I'm oh, confident wow. at this point that they're, they're in fact hoaxes. Um, I haven't published the, the paper on it and stuff like that yet. I'm kind of, I'm way distracted from you know a hoax from 2012 but um the fact is that uh, i i got clued in that the london tracks were hoaxed because of the lack of horizontal toe splay um Mm -hmm. i had a lot of differentiation in the depth of the toes um but not in the in the splay going out sideways on, on the horizontal plane and and so that started concerning me and so i so i took some of the more suspect footprint casts from the 70 something that I collected from that one time. Um, and then I, I called a known hoaxer, a guy, see, let me, let me back up a bit. The London tracks, I think were February of 2012. Mm-hmm. Um, and then in October, another hoax got reported directly to me and also to the BFRO, um, by some, um, known skeptics that hang out on the Bigfoot forums. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, I'm not, I'm not in the business of like outing people and embarrassing and all that sort of stuff, you know, and they had their reasons that made sense okay. to them. I think, I still think it's rude and borderline, you know, it was a social experiment as far as they were concerned. Yeah. They wanted to show that they could fool Bigfooters basically. Yeah. So one guy went and stomped all over the place with these wooden stompers up in LB, Washington, um, kind of just South of, uh, Mount Rainier in that area. Um, and then another guy, um, on the Bigfoot forums, he reported it. 
and he used a fake name and he lied and stuff like that. And, you know, being the Bigfoot researcher I am, that's two or three hour drive. So I went up there two days in a row, spent a couple hundred dollars in gas, plaster and food and all that sort of stuff. And, uh, I gathered a number of, uh, casts from that location. Um, and they ended up being fake as well. But the thing is, um, when I was looking at the London casts and trying to figure out, Hey, this looks fishy to me. I called the guy, I called the guy that hoaxed me. And, um, and I said, Hey, you don't happen to know anybody with a fake pair of stompers, do you, that I could borrow? Mm. And he goes, Oh my gosh, I would, I will, I'll tell you what, I'll make some for you. I said, Oh mm. yeah. And actually this guy, this guy actually, and I, we have a good relationship, you know, um, I don't see him or anything like that, but we have a pretty good relationship. And I think he, begrudgingly respects me on some level, even though he thinks I'm foolish and I've seen him say very rude things about me um, online yeah. and stuff like that. Yeah. But, you know, I don't know, whatever. We all have our social baggage we take with us and he we has his own share too, I imagine, yeah. right? <laughs> yeah. But anyway, um, so he lent me a pair of fake stompers for a, 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 quite a while, actually. And I would take them out to the woods and I would run around in various substrates and examine the footprints I left and cast them. Um, and all this sort of stuff and all the concerns, all, all the strange footprints I had a hard time explaining from the London tracks. Mm -hmm. Um, I found examples that matched them using the fake stompers. And so I started understanding how those interact with the ground better, uh, or not better, but in a different manner than a living malleable foot would. Mm -hmm. And so through, through those two hoaxes, I've become actually pretty good at nailing down hoaxed footprints. Um, they're like one of the big, uh, one of the big indicators is, um, a flat foot, the entire stretch for numerous prints in a row, but with a little bit of dirt kicked up behind the toes, basically at the heads of the metatarsals, the heads, which are the forward part um, of that metatarsals right behind the toes where the, uh, the phalanges attach. Th that's not where dirt should be kicked up. Um, and in human prints, it's a little bit back from there, but in Sasquatch prints, it's at the base of the metatarsals, almost right underneath the ankle, about, about at the halfway mark, uh, maybe a little bit further back than that. Um, so that's one of the indicators that I look for. And, and because the dirt kick up there, the mid-tarsal ridge, as they call it, or a mid-tarsal pressure disc, which is a similar um, print feature, but caused by a different plasticity to the substrate. Um, those are things that I look for in the photograph of the print in the ground. And you can also see them in the cast as well. Not always, but um, often. So that, that's mm -hmm. just one thing I look for. That's amazing. I think um, clearly there as well, you were hoaxed and you embraced the hoax. Yeah, and absolutely. And you learned how to hoax your own tracks and therefore you were fooled again. And I, I think, I mean, I've been caught a bunch of times. I was caught out recently with um, a big cat sighting in Scotland. Now, there was actually a big cat sighting. The police issued a local warning. And then somebody that was a sheet metal worker went and carved and actually cut out a perfect silhouette of a black panther, stuck yeah. it in the field and photographed it and sent it to me and I posted it. And all the, the, the relevant details were there. I was a bit curious when I saw it, but I thought, well, you know, it's one shot. Okay, let's just post it and see what happens. And of course, he came in the papers a few days later and said, well, this was me. This is all a big hoax. You know, these guys don't know anything. And you learn. You know, to to be cautious at least uh, from that. Now, the footprints yeah. I think are great. We you know we do have a few things here, but we're really lacking in that regard. And one of the reasons I thought it could be if the Almasty had that that type of footprint, and we do find bare footprints that are quite large that seem to be unshod, 
some un- unshod feet in a way, but it's it's just too ambiguous really to to classify as anything. And I thought the reason that people overlook these uh, quite a lot is that those um those running shoes that uh, the, the massive feet. Yeah, that's right. They're very popular here. So people go out running them all the time, and I was now they're looking for big footprints, and I saw those bare footprints in the snow or in in mud in the winter. I think nothing of it at all. I just walk straight past. I might think the person had big feet, but that was it. <laughs> you know, yeah. I go straight on. And uh, coming off of that, actually, I know you've travelled extensively with the Finding Bigfoot program, and also uh, by yourself in search of these animals. You've obviously heard countless first-hand eyewitness encounters, and what I would be very interested in is what some of the most common types of encounters and descriptions that most people give. What's what are some of the factors that are almost the same every time that you hear from witnesses? Well, I think that uh, well, I'll be, physical description first of all. Um, they may vary in size. Um, they may vary in body uh, t- type, I guess. Um, what is it? Mesomorphs, I think, is what the term is called. The different body shapes. Um, oh yes. Yeah. So, so, some are skinny. Some are uh, some are rail thin. Some are very thick. Some are built like a linebacker, like an American football player. Some are built like an American basketball player, but always muscular and in good shape. Um, they're they're the hair colors um, vary pretty widely. You know, from like maybe coyote colored, you know, like a tan or tawny sort of thing to a black. But what's interesting is that um, inevitably when lit from behind, like if the sun's behind them or a car comes up the road behind them, uh, no matter what color their hair appears to be, um, there's always a red sheen to it um, when lit from behind. And that's one of the things that we look for when you're doing microscopic analysis of hairs, um, a red sort of color behind it, no matter what color it appears to be when you hold it up. Um, and th- which is interesting because, uh, you know, you think of the other red ape, it's, uh, the orangutan, mm-hmm. um, you'd have to wonder like, why wouldn't, why in the world would a, would a, uh, an animal be red colored? Like, how does that serve them? Um, and whether it's an orangutan or a Sasquatch, you know, which is often described as kind of a reddish sort of ginger like color. Right. And this actually uh, has to do with physics. Um, the orangutan or Sasquatch or any other animal that is red colored, when when they are under the forest canopy, um, the red the red wavelengths of light are the first to disappear and turn to black, mm. which is why deep sea fish are usually reddish or orangish yes. in color because yes. in the depths of the ocean, all those light, all the wavelengths of light are filtered out and they appear black. So if you want to appear black yeah. under the forest canopy, you want to be kind of a reddish color. And um, so it kind of makes sense um, that a Sasquatch or an orangutan or anything else would be that color there. Um, that, so anyway, that's another that's commonality. Awesome. That's yeah. really awesome. Yeah. I hear that a lot. Actually, they're described as auburn sometimes or mm-hmm. occasionally ginger even. But mm-hmm. yeah, sure. sure. That's very, very common. Um, and that, uh, what about the types of sightings, locations? Now, uh, we did a little study here, and we found that 90, I don't know, in, let's just say 98% of all sightings were incidental sightings. These were not made by people looking for them. They were largely road, road sightings, road crossings, or they were people walking dogs, you know, often women alone, occasionally children as well. Uh, do you find that you have that commonality in the US as well? That, yeah. Uh, People seem less threatening. Uh, you know, the hunters are probably rarely approached. Whereas, well, um, yes and no. Yeah, I mean, I, I think well, the vast majority of people stumble upon them. 
you know, people aren't out looking for these things. And very few of us actually do that. And, uh, and our success rate is very low. So it's usually people stumbling upon them, usually out hiking or camping or driving. Those are the three biggest occup- occupations, uh, pa- uh, things that people are doing while they see a Sasquatch. Um, and I think the driving thing makes perfect sense uh, because when you look at the North American forests, the thick forests, um, the most nutritious plants need sunlight, essentially. Uh, so you're talking about meadows, you're talking about power line cuts and railroad tracks and roads, roadsides. That's where the herbivores like deer and whatnot are feeding because uh, they need those highly nutritious um, sunlight-fueled plants. Um, whereas other animals like elk, for example, um, elk can actually feed quite well underneath the forest canopy on very low nutritious plants because of their digestive system. It's longer, it's thicker, they're really large animals. Um, so they can actually digest these low nutritional value foods, whereas deer and other yummy things for Sasquatches can't. So they're going to be feeding in these places like the roadside. So it makes sense that if the prey are there, the predators would be there as well. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, a lot of other people are just hiking or camping and they stumble upon one, essentially. Um, they certainly don't have to be in the deep, dark woods. Um, they are right on the edges of civilization. I spoke to somebody just yesterday uh, who saw one in Indiana. Um, and Indiana isn't generally thought of as a Bigfoot state, but southern Indiana is very heavily forested. And he was three, three blocks down from the main street in town. But on the outskirts, there was there were woods there. It was totally suitable habitat. But you don't have to go to the middle of nowhere to see a Bigfoot. There, you can just wait for them to come to you. It might be a long wait. It may never happen, but it could sure. happen. Sure. I know I've heard a, a lot of reports like this, actually, about them coming right to the edge of towns. And that, I think that seems very even harder for people who are not familiar with the subject to believe. But then other animals obviously come to the edge of our towns because there's food there. We throw food away. There's rubbish tips and and all mm-hmm. kinds of things to pick up, I would guess. I, I was speaking to Gary Opit just the other day in Australia, huh. and uh, he says to say hi, by the way. I, I like Gary. And, he's a good oh, – I really great. had a good time with him. Oh, fantastic. I mean, he gave me so much information. It was amazing. And um, he was talking about a few sightings just on the edge of towns as well. Again, you know, just maybe a block outside of the, the main town centre. Um, we're not talking countryside here, but it backs on to – countryside like most places do uh forests and woods and the, and the rest bears do that right bears come into yeah. town foxes raccoons sure it's where the food make. is right yeah it's always where the food is and if you if you have food out and bears are around well that's a good indicator the sasquatches could be as well but also the 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 um, around here you know raccoons and possums and skunks um, all those animals are, you know, going to be scavenging on what humans put out, whether it's dog food or the compost pile or something. And not all, and, and Sasquatches, I believe, eat those. Um, they eat all those animals and the things that those animals are going after. Um, uh-huh. One of the things I've heard again and again from long-term witnesses, um, I don't like the term habituators. I don't think you can truly habituate no. a Sasquatch, yeah, but I like exactly. long-term witness. I think that's a much more appropriate term. Um, again and again, I hear when the Bigfoots are around, all the raccoons, skunks, and possums disappear. Uh, now, maybe they know better and they're hiding, or maybe they're plucked off and eaten. Yeah. I don't know. But, so whenever you find food that for all of those smaller animals, you do find food for the larger ones, too. It was a sighting reported here. Um, it was a sighting, I believe, from the 90s. It was recently uh, called in of somebody who said they saw a wild man chasing a fox around a country park at night. 
us walking their dog, so chasing it to catch it, obviously, as, as, as a meal. And we have yeah, millions of these foxes. So I guess that could be a good food source. Now, oh, yeah. um, just coming on to your, your time in finding Bigfoot and all of the, the time you spent uh, looking for Bigfoot in the forest. I, I first became familiar with you, actually, as a, I live on the outskirts of London. I've been a regular London computer, uh, commuter for many, many, many years. I watched and listened to the show whilst making my crazy commute around the city every day for a long time. And I really enjoyed it. You know, you were often in the forest at night, you know, when I was traveling around at 6, 6.30 in the morning, you know, getting ready to, to go into my own crazy jungle. And um, what I always wanted to ask you guys was, and it's popped into my head a few times while I've been out in the woods recently, is that was there ever a situation where you've, felt out at night in the forest that you were very close to seeing a Bigfoot, that you felt something was definitely there and you were close to seeing one. And in that moment, did you have a change of heart or transits? Because of course, you know, that's the situation where you're face to face with an animal you don't know, and it has to react uh, as an individual. So do you, who knows what could happen? So have you had a situation like that? And if so, did you feel like perhaps you didn't want to be there at the time? Not on the show. I mean, the show, we were very focused. That was the point. I mean, the only Sasquatch I ever saw was on the show. Um, and we were very close on a number of other occasions, right? I really thought we were going to go home with footage that night. Um, but looking back um, to the early days of my Bigfooting, and I'm thinking probably around 1999 or 2000 or something. I don't, I don't really know. Um, I, I believe at this point, looking back, I st- my, uh, my ex-wife and I stumbled across a Sasquatch at Bluff Creek. Um, it's actually a Notice Creek, which is real close to a louse camp at bluff creek or whatever but um yeah we we ran across something large and heavy that sounded like it to me like it was walking bipedally down in the river and i couldn't see it and then uh it got underneath us and and snapped this huge tree i mean this this 60 or 80 foot tree just went crack and like the whole thing like scared the hell out of us honestly um and then uh we tried to get up to the bridge and look down the creek we couldn't see it we went back to where we were originally and we could hear it quickly moving back upstream from whence it came and then uh, we went down to the riverbed and it took honestly three or four minutes to go those probably 40 yards mm-hmm. down to the riverbed it was very very thick and when we got down there i turned to um uh, monica is my uh, ex's name i go monica whatever it is it's right there we got to go check it out and she goes you're going alone <laughs> and so in that in that moment way back then um, I had a change of heart, which is unfortunate because I, I know I was really close. I think I was really close to one of those things at that time. Yeah. Um, but at, since then, because of that incident, I've kind of vowed to myself to never do that again. I mean, uh-huh. you only live one. You, know, you only live once, right? Let, well, let's hope at least. Um, so yeah. when you're on the other side of the pearly gates and you're having a beer with whoever you know your deity is, um, and they're saying so. And you're you're there and, and with everybody else. They go, "How did you die?" And everybody's going, "Oh, I died in this hospital with tubes up every orifice of mine, you know." And <laughs> and then when it's my turn, I can say, "Yeah, I was wrapped around a tree by a Sasquatch." Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, I think that's a much more respectable way yeah. to enter the beyond. <laughs> All the, some of the guests there uh, staying at the pearly gates. Oh, it's Cliff Barrett. I guess he saw his Sasquatch. <laughs> well, look, how did he get in here? <laughs> he must have seen it. Um, you know, there, there was a, a situation not too uh, long ago uh, when I was in Scotland at Loch Ness. I've told this story a few times recently, but it's very recent. It was in the beginning of January. Now, I do not classify this as a sighting at all, but the, it reinforced the question to me. 
So I was, uh, there's a path, um, I think you've been up in the hills there near Loch Ness anyway, haven't you? I have. And um, we were, I was walking along the Old Macreesh, um uh, path along the Great Glen Highway up in the, the, those thick pine forests there. And I would been down at Fort Augustus in, investigating a Loch Ness sighting, a recent one. I just took a walk and said, oh, it's, it's January 20th, there's nobody around. There were two big trees pushed across, uh, fallen across uh, significant stretches of the path. And there were high winds two days before. So that to me, that's a no brainer. High winds, fallen trees, fine, whatever. And I got to the top, I saw the lock and I was coming back down. It's very, very steep. I was taking photos of these waterfalls. And then in the corner of my eye, there was a flick and I saw a figure go behind the tree, but it was the corner of the eye. I said to myself, Andy, look, you know, you're a monster hunter up in the woods for four hours by yourself. And now you think you've seen something and you feel a bit freaked out. Any feeling you have from this point onwards, and I'm not here to single animal the whole time either, that was the other thing. Any feeling you have from this point onwards is, it's got to be all in your head. It can't be anything else because, you know, that's not a sighting. And now you feel nervous. And I, for a second, knowing it was about an hour and a half back down from where I was, for a second I thought, do I want to be in this situation? By myself up in the woods suddenly. And then I could hear this movement in the trees and branch snapping and the rest of it. But there are a lot of deer up there. And um, that to me is enough. I didn't see anything, not really. I felt a bit freaked out, but I had been by myself for a long time looking for monsters. Yeah. And um, that's, that's a no-brainer. To me, that's like... Um, that's a that's a, a sighting made up in the imagination, and then perhaps I noticed the sound of the animals once I started making my way down, feeling yeah. slightly panicked. So that you know that that's what was interesting to me. Okay, you're here. Maybe this is your chance. Do you want it? Because mm-hmm. once you get it, you've got an hour and a half down into the woods. Maybe this thing will follow you all the way out. It could be quite a harrowing experience. Um, been a, there, there have been a few times, like when I, because again, I go bigfooting alone a fair amount, and when I'm out there alone, and I get them knocking back at me, and there's been a couple, and they're getting closer. There have been a few times I've, I said, like, what the hell am I doing? <laughs> you know, but I, the same advice I give to everybody else, you know, don't go knocking on somebody's door if you don't want them to answer. <laughs> <Yeah>. Exactly. <laughs> well, exactly, exactly. That that's right. If you're gonna go door to door. Be prepared. There's some strange people looking at. Yeah, yeah. Uh, exactly. You <laughs> mentioned Dr. Jeff Meldrum, and there's a few others, but there's very few scientists involved in this research. Do you feel there will ever be a, a soaring out in the scientific community towards the subject, or do you think the genre itself acts as a kind of repellent to career scientists? Oh well, I mean, eventually, all sorts of people will be interested because the species will be proven real. I think that's inevitable, essentially. But uh, I think that as far as academic interest in Bigfoots, um, that will be a slow and gradual um, rising of a tide, I suppose. Uh, Most likely what will happen is that um, uh, DNA evidence will be obtained and um, repeatable DNA evidence will be obtained. Now, unfortunately, um, a large section of the public who doesn't understand DNA will say, I told you so, blah, 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 and I'm, I was right, whatever. But most people go, well, I don't understand DNA, so who knows what the hell they're talking about, right? But a small segment of scientists who do understand DNA will look closely at this, probably as a lark, just like, well, this is probably nonsense, and then walk away going, oh my God, what is this? And then that will sort of start building momentum, and more and more mm-hmm. academics will be talking about 
got their specialty uh, in, in the area of DNA or whatever and convincing other people that like, you know what, there might be something to this. And that's what I kind of picture this as like the rising tide of acceptance um, that'll eventually culminate in a dead one. Unfortunately, I, I don't really advocate for that, but it's the truth. I'm not naive. Um, no. DNA won't be enough. Um, DNA will never be enough. They, it'll just increase the interest level until a type specimen is obtained. Sure. Sure. I was talking to somebody the other day, but the, the Kraken, so mm. the Kraken is thought to be the giant squid. And so, that was the Kraken. If you talked about seeing a Kraken in years, years past, you know, you were some crazy sailor spinning yarns. Mm-hmm. Now you walk into a museum, there is, in, you know, in a giant um, glass case of formaldehyde, the Kraken, yeah. or the giant mm-hmm. squid, as we call it now. And I often think about that with Sasquatch. Will it be that one day you walk into a museum and there is, you know, there is a specimen, and you go, oh, Sasquatch. Yeah, you know, maybe go on to the next ex- exhibit. You know, could could that be a possibility for us in the future? Or what do you yeah. think of the um, the um, the difficulties of of proving this species is real in, in regards to what you've learned about the behaviour? Oh well, the, the, number one, there's so few of them. Um, there really aren't very many of these things at all. Uh, the, there aren't five thousand in Washington or Oregon or something like that. There's probably um, a few hundred you know, in, in either of these places, uh, the best habitat, you know, around. Uh, so the, the rarity of the species, um, the fact that uh, they are elusive and nocturnal and hyper-vigilant and um, they don't want anything to do with this generally. And and also there, there's a, it's going to take a bullet, right? Um, there's n- not a whole lot of hunters here in North America are equipped for to bring down something like a Sasquatch. Uh, deer require a different size of gun. Um, people who go out hunting grizzlies or moose or elk, maybe, maybe mm-hmm. elk, um, they would have to get a good shot, I think. But um, yeah, those are the types of peop- gun, like gun owners around in North America that might have a chance at taking one down. But, but what stops them is that uh, despite the media, despite what the, the stereotypical hunter is portrayed as in, in, in the news or on television or in movies mm-hmm. – they are not gun-happy hillbillies going around and shooting at everything that moves. Um, the number one rule of hunting is that you never shoot at something unless you know exactly what it is you're shooting at because uh, you don't want to kill a person. Mm-hmm. Well, as it turns out, Sasquatches are people-shaped. You know, They look like a guy in a monkey suit. That's what yeah. they look like, literally. And uh, I've spoken to quite a few hunters that actually had these things in their rifle sights. They said, I just couldn't shoot it. It looked like it was a human. It looked like it was just too human. I knew it wasn't a person, but it looked too human. I wasn't going to mm. shoot it, which uh, brings up another difficulty uh, with the eventuality of bringing one in, is that these things are almost certainly a hominin. A hominin is a special term that means anything on the human family tree since uh, we split off from chimpanzees six or eight million years ago. And that means Homo erectus, and that means Homo like Neanderthalus, the, the, the Denisovans, all of those, you know, Homo ergaster, er- uh-huh. and Australopithecines. And I'm, mm-hmm. I'm a strong proponent of uh, Sasquatches being relic um, robust Australopithecines, specifically Paranthropus. Um, and that means they are a hominin on the human family tree. Does that make them human? Is going to be a very interesting question. Mm. Um, it's going to revolutionize. It's, there's going to be a revolution in thought. It's going to shift everybody's paradigm of what it means to be human. 
when we see these things because I, I I am of the opinion that these things use language. They have a uh, um, symbolic thought. Um, maybe not a, a, a language as advanced as yeah. you know ours or something like that, but some sort of proto language. They're they're talking to each other. They're doing something. Um, I mean, there's definitely so, recorded examples of some oh, yeah. unexplained mm-hmm. speech. Oh yeah, and I've I've spoken to witnesses who said that yeah they were going back and forth and two different voices. Uh, yeah, yeah. I think the evidence suggests that they do that somehow. So it's going to be a really interesting challenge after the whole thing's done to say, okay, well, what does that mean for us? You know, what does that mean for Homo sapiens and do the and Sasquatches? Do they get human rights? Because there's already a couple forward-thinking countries that are trying to give uh, cetaceans like the whales and uh, the great apes human rights. Portugal, Spain, like they're both doing these things in their I courts didn't have right any now. Idea about that at all. That's amazing. Yeah, uh huh. And I think that I think they're just forward thinking at this point because that problem will eventually come to north america um i think with the discovery of the sasquatch wow it's going to bring up all sorts of like indigenous rights um and human rights and animal rights because sasquatches aren't human beings but they're not like the other apes either they're something else they're 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 probably the only other hominin in north america um and that's a whole different you know can of worms I mean, it definitely seems like a really loaded subject. I've had all kinds of conspiracies as to do with um, logging interests, not wanting this species to be found because uh, habitats would be protected and et cetera, et cetera. But from what I saw on my trip uh, to the U.S. recently, and I, I had nine internal flights while I was there, there's a lot of forest around. Yeah. <laughs> I'm sure there's, there, I mean, you have to protect that habitat, but I'm sure it wouldn't affect too many, you know, logging interests in areas that are specifically used for that purpose uh, already. Um, now, coming away, well, slightly coming away from Sasquatch, there's two exciting things coming up uh, with you at the moment. Uh, first being that you and Boba are starting a podcast. Yeah, yeah, we are actually. We did a little recording last night. Um, we have a tentative scheduled witness tonight. Um, wow. Yeah, we're start just kind of starting to work on it, trying to de- um, acquire more content. I don't know when we're actually going to start publishing them, um, but uh, we're just trying to, you know, fill the coffers with lots of good content at this point. So no matter what format the show ends up taking, um, we can just pipe the stuff that we have recorded into it. So fantastic! And and will that be just about Bigfoot or all types and, and all manner of Bigfoot uh, cryptids and and even paranormal things? Well, uh, the name of it says it all. It's Bigfoot and Beyond. Obviously, uh, uh, Bobo and I are, you know, Bigfooters essentially. So a lot of it will have to do with Bigfoots. Um, but you know, we're I'm interested in other things too. I don't have time to really look into them, but I've got some perhaps moderately intelligent things to say about them. Um, you know, I, I have run across uh, witnesses of those giant like uh, river serpent sort of things, or, you know, I have gone to Loch Ness and poked around there. And, um, I have personally seen a black Panther and, you know, I've seen a UFO, I mean, or whatever it was, I don't know what it was. Um, so I've got a little bit of experience and a little bit to say about these things. Um, but also frankly, I mean, I, I think that at, at this point, the finding Bigfoot audience um, I, I get a lot of emails saying that they miss us, frankly. And this is just a chance to hang out with Bobo and Cliff for a little while because uh, a lot of stuff never made it to the screen with Finding Bigfoot. And we're going to go back and revisit some of those witnesses. Um, but we're also just going to talk about what's going on because uh, not a day goes by 
or almost not a day goes by that I don't do something squatchy, you know? Um, like in November, I was out on a sighting report and got a footprint cast from that. Um, I'm always wow. playing around at the, the footprints. Uh, in the, I have a collection in the garage. Um, and, you know, I called Bobo the other day uh, and I go, dude, what, what's happening, man? He goes, yeah, I had to break into my neighbor's house. I go, like, why? He said, yeah, the parakeet. I go, the parakeet, what? <sighs> yeah, yeah, my neighbor, it's cold outside. Yeah, and, and like, so the story goes like that it's cold, <laughs> you know, it's like 30 degrees. Bobo had to break into his neighbor's house through the window to go save the life of his parakeet and wrap it up and stuff. It's like, that's ridiculous. <sighs> and I, I and I think that there's a certain um, slice of the Finding Bigfoot audience or the Bigfooting audience that would love to know about what the ridiculous things in Bobo's, yeah. you know, daily routine that he doesn't think it. today um we're supposed to have this interview tonight with this witness 7 30 and i get an email saying that his friend has to bring a boat from crescent city to eureka so he, and he's going to jump on because the two deckhands won't go out in the water because the ocean is too rough so bobo has to go take the boat down with them so bobo's out on the on the pacific ocean right now trying to bring <laughs> a boat to safe harbor and that just came up last night at 10 o'clock at night you know it's like well yeah. when i talk to bobo tonight or if, if he's even around if it doesn't kill him um i want to talk about so what's up with the boat thing talk to me about that you know that's excellent. Um, that's excellent. there's a lot of he's interesting living life the way we would love to live it if only we weren't so cautious I suppose, um, uh, although I've hung out with Bobo for long stretches of time, it could be a little stressful, you know, because oh, <laughs> there are sometimes like you really you, don't know. Not like, for him. Like, yeah. <laughs> no, well, yeah, he doesn't really, he kind of rolls with it. But, you know, I, I think I'm a little, yeah, I, I, I don't know, I'm, I'm, perhaps I'm a little bit more domesticated than Bobo is. But, yeah, there, there are literally times you kind of wonder, um, yeah, I could die. I wonder how we're going to get out of this. But you always know you're not going to die. That's the thing about hanging out with the Bobes is that you know you're in danger. You know things could go terribly wrong. But for somehow, in some way, you're going to get out of it. You just don't know how. I had this feeling when we spoke together, actually. Um, the first thing that happened when I was at the conference, he came over and he said, Hey, Beast of Britain. And I said, Oh, excellent. Bobo knows who I am. Then I looked out at my table with a big Beast of Britain sign on it and thought, it's just good um, conference etiquette. <laughs> How nice of him, you know. Um, but still, he was very nice to chat to. He even said to me, look, if you're in my part of the world, pop by and we'll go and check out the whole, you know, Bluff Creek thing, um, which would be fantastic, of course. And that's everybody's dream. Now, this is an exciting thing, you know, the podcast that you're doing, but even more exciting, I, I saw on your um, Instagram feed recently, say opening a Bigfoot museum. Yeah, yeah, uh, my wife happening? and I, uh, it, it's, yeah, my wife and I are opening uh, the North American Bigfoot Center. Um because there's other successful museums in, in the United States here. There's uh, Lauren Coleman's International Museum of Cryptozoology. Yes. There's Dave Becerra, Dave and Melinda Becerra's uh, the, um, uh, Expedition Bigfoot in Georgia. It's excellent. And each one has like their different take on the subject. Uh, they're different, a different feel, shall we say. Um, and there's not really one out here in the West Coast of North America. I just heard recently that Tom Steenberg and, uh, and what's his name? Miller. Um, his last, last name is Miller. Joe, or I, it's escaping me right now. It'll probably it'll come to me the second I stop thinking of it. Uh, the, I think they opened a small one in uh, Harrison Hot Springs. I haven't heard much about it though, so I, I need to get up there and or you know talk to Thomas and see what's going on with it. Um, but uh, there's none in the United States and Portland, Oregon, where I live. I, actually, I live in the woods outside of Portland, but you know mm -hmm. Portland's 45 minutes from here. 
um, we they pride themselves on being weird as the P- keep Portland weird. And it's like, why isn't there a Bigfoot museum here? Yeah. <laughs> uh, and, and, um, you know, and once the show ended, I mean, there, that was my income. So I essentially, my, my income dropped significantly yeah, well, and sure, yeah. Uh, yeah. And I don't need a lot of money to live. You know, I'm, I'm pretty lucky in that way. I'm a simple guy. Um, so as uh, it seems, you know what, maybe I can do this. Um, so I went out and saw Dave Becerra's museum for myself. Um, and I, I've seen Lauren's. I've been out there since actually, and kind of, I'm picking the things I like the best out of both of them. The things that I feel I can do the best. Mm-hmm. I'm kind of brushing off my elementary school teaching chops and I'm going to put together um, uh, an exhibit hall that addresses everybody from the most diehard skeptic to the most over the top white eyed believer raving with their hands waving in the air. You know, a little bit of something for everybody in a fun, quirky, but yet um, dignified and educational way. You know, because uh, I, I, sure I it will be. Yeah. I think so. I've got a great designer, my good my good friend Scott Minton. Um, he's helping me design it. Uh, he's he designs retail spaces for a living. He did like the 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 Glacier National Park gift store, oh, for wow. example. Okay. So uh, he's done a few. <laughs> yeah, he's 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 a heavy guy, and he's a great artist. So he and I are are making the displays. My wife, who is a uh, um, special effects makeup artist, she's making some of the cool stuff for that. us. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I saw the yeah, so um, she... Gigantopithecus uh, oh, yeah. uh, mandibles. The, Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I have a, I have not a fossil, but a replica of the fossil, mm-hmm. and that was out one day, and I came home, and sh- she sculpted another, like wow. based off of that one. It's like, well, that's fantastic. Yeah, so, so, so we're all three of us are the team, um, and we're, we're piecing it together, and you know, it, we were kind of delayed because of uh, um, permits and things like that, like county permits. We've been delayed for a long time, actually, but literally last Friday we got a hold of the permits. So now we're allowed to barrel forth into the unknown and start construction and, you know, uh, plumbing and electrical issues and, you know, all the, the boring stuff. All the joys um, of starting a business. Yeah. Yeah. But after we throw (laughs) money at this thing for a month or whatever, then we, then we're getting into the cool stuff, the stuff that I really want to do, you know, like the displays and how do we present this information to the public and uh, what sort of partners can we reach out to and bring them in to help us out with uh, uh, our message which is basically these things are real there's a history of them and there's a history of people looking for them Um, we want to like kind of uh, perhaps protect and preserve that tradition and put put it out there for people to decide for themselves because they are real i bet my life on it already Mm-hmm. And all they need to do is become familiar with the evidence to open their minds just a little bit and say, you know what, maybe there is something to this after they walk away from our museum. Well, I, I, I truly think it'll be a great project. And if I'm ever in the, the neighborhood, I, I definitely would like to, to drop by for a cup of coffee and a, and a, a little look around. It sounds amazing. Now, yeah. talking about uh, projects and money and everything else like that, I've asked everybody who's been on the show if money was no object, you could conduct an expedition anywhere in the world. Where would you go? What would you look for? And who would you take with you? You don't have to take me. I'm not sensitive, by the way, because <laughs> I'm asking <laughs> you the question. I'm not going to be any help to you. But who would, <laughs> who would you take? Where would you go? What would you look for? I think that the most productive method would be, if money was no object, is to find a uh, a residence with a long history of repeated activity and buy it and live there. It's wow. as simple as that. 
Yeah, because uh, you can say British Columbia. Yeah, there's certainly lots of Bigfoots in British Columbia or the, the Olympic Peninsula of Washington or Mount Hood National Forest, literally my backyard. Um, but it's it's a, it's always just kind of throwing a dart at a dart board with your eyes covered. But if you have a spot where there's a history of them and they, they've repeatedly come back again and again with some reliability, no matter who lived there, then those are the spots you'd want to be in. Um, Sasquatches are creatures of habit just like every other animal is. Um, so those would be the best locations. And who's going with you? Who are the two researchers that you're taking? Oh, um, well, I'd be living there, so I'd want to take my wife, although she's not okay. a researcher per se. <laughs> um, but I do think that females play an important role in all of this because yeah. uh, I think it's probably their body language or maybe the sound of their voice or something mm. that uh, makes them a little bit more approachable for Sasquatches. Um, but, you know... I don't, I mean, I don't know if I'd bring anybody, honestly. I think your wife, I, your wife is a good choice. You may be listening to this, and I think that's, that's a, you've made a safe choice, Cliff. Yeah, I, I don't need to bring anybody because no. the evidence that I gather, I can get into the right hands. I understand. That, 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 I think that's actually, that's, that's a very different answer to the ones I've had uh, most. Um, you were included in, in Jeff Meldrum's uh, team searching mm -hmm. for the Orang Pendic, you and Adam. Huh? Which is nice, yeah. Very nice. So you, you, well, Jeff and I—I consider Jeff a friend now. I, I mean, I'm—I'm I'm lucky at that point. That I'm, I'm at the point in this career thing that I'm, whatever this is, you know, lifestyle career. I don't know what to call it. That uh, you know, I went from admiring these people from afar, reading their books, to actually being able to call them friends. Uh, Jeff has spent the night at the house, you know, like mm. in the guest room, and we've—we've we've done. I think 10 days in a row in the woods together, you know, that sort of stuff. Like he's a friend of mine now. And I, I do very much appreciate his friendship and guidance and um, advice. Um, and it, certainly everything I, that comes my way of value, I send to him. So I, well, I, I had a, a lovely meeting with him when I was at the international cryptozoology conference and I didn't know him. Uh, I'd never met him before. I met him in the lift before we were all going to the conference. And the first thing that binged up in my head was don't ask him about Todd Standing. He doesn't want to talk about it. You've just met him. Do not mention yeah. this. And uh, later at the dinner, somebody brought it up. He's completely fine with it. We talked for oh, a yeah. long time and eventually got into family and kids. I've got two young children. I'm in my 40s, but I've got two children, five and two years old, two daughters. And he has nine children. Yeah. And uh, he told me this like, <laughs> Suddenly started laughing. I said, okay, so once again, the bravery isn't really being a professor researching Bigfoot. <laughs> you already did something pretty brave, and this seems easy to you now. Yeah. You know, this is where you are. Now, uh, I, I do really, really appreciate you coming on and do this whole thing. Uh, just two quick questions before we go. Sure. Uh, of all the cryptid animals in the world, which do you think will be uh, most likely to be discovered? in the next 10 years. What's the most likely thing with all the research that's that's going on out there uh, to be discovered? Is it the Sasquatch or Pendic or, or something else? I don't know. I don't know. I, I think that we're most likely to find uh, ghost hominin species first. And I don't mean like ghosts, like ghost hunters, ghosts. Yeah. I, I mean like uh, remnant DNA um, of these creatures oh. around. And I think that some of those discoveries might point to a, a, a living example thereof eDNA and things like that yeah yeah or yeah exactly eDNA because you know that's that study they did at the cave dirt where they discovered Neanderthal and Denisovan DNA in the cave dirt even though there was no record of them there's no artifacts or any or fossils in the cave they found evidence of them in the cave so I think that um 
I think that that has a, a real strong possibility of like some sort of a, you know, ar- archaic sp- hominin species in our DNA or some DNA out there in the world in a cave somewhere or something that comes up. So an unknown species of something like that, that is probably extinct. I think that would probably be by far the most likely. Um, I see, I would normally say the orang pendek or something, but then again, in, in Indonesia, you're not allowed to have a gun. And as, uh, as I mentioned, the only way these are really going to be these mysteries are going to be solved yeah. is a dead one. A dead one. It's it's just the way. It's the state wow. of our Victoria era science at this point. Yeah. You know, it, like it what is, is that thing over there? Assertion that you're making. It really. is. It's not really a moral assertion that you need. Same when we mentioned the kraken earlier. Yeah. We yeah. Have, there were stories, but we have specimens now, and so we yeah, know you have to have a specimen. You just have to. You just have to. No, um, absolutely. So, so because of that, I don't think that um, a lot of other countries don't really have people running around with guns like we do in the U.S., you know. Um, we're kind of a gun-happy nation in some ways. And don't get me wrong, I own a firearm as well. I mean, I, but I'm also pretty, you know, liberal my my uh, gun rights. You know, I'm not, not conservative in nature. Um, but uh, I think that as far as the number of guns in the woods, it might be something here in the United States. Because mm-hmm. I'm not aware of the, I don't know what the gun laws are in Australia, so I wouldn't, ex- but I wouldn't expect them to have a lot of very guns strict. around. So, very, very, very strict. strict. Yeah, yeah, yeah. See, so I, I nobody's going to shoot one of like shoot a, a Yowie or a Brown Jack in Australia because of the lack of guns. And I think the same is true for most parts of the world, like Indonesia, where Sumatra is, where the Orang Pendek and the Orang Gadang are. Definitely true here. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah, sure, sure. Um, so I, I guess. As far as somebody put a putting a bullet into something, I guess it would have to be the United States just because of the nature of the country. Um, but I think that if an effort was put forth in a number of places, there would be results. Um, and again, I don't really advocate for that. I'm a compassionate guy. I'm not a hunter. But I'm also a realist, and I understand what's yeah. going on. I understand it's you know. a loaded subject as well. Uh, it is. To, to, uh, you're not advocating it. You're just scientifically asserting that that is the way that we will know that this species exists. Definitely- yeah, I don't want to shoot one. I mean, I no. feel so guilty. And besides that, you know, you know what always comes to mind is the Grover Krantz quote, because um, Grover obviously was a pro-kill individual for Sasquatch, just to prove the species. And he's and somebody asked him, "Hey, uh, what would be the first thing you would do if you shot one?" <laughs> and uh, he thought for a moment and said, "Reload." Yeah. I I know that I know that the the, uh, the the line actually, and I think mine would be run, obviously, <laughs> reload it and run. <laughs> yeah, yeah, mine would be regret. Yeah, yeah regret, regret what I just done. reload, <laughs> run, died. Yeah. Um, <laughs> well, look, Cliff, thank you so so much for coming on. I've really really appreciated it. I feel like I've learned a lot, and uh, I'd love to have you on in the future and just keep us posted about the museum and the podcast and everything. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm happy to come on whenever you want. It's nice and easy to talk and squatch. It's no big deal. Um, yeah, and as far as uh, museum and podcast and whatever else I'm up to, just go to the website, you know, North American Bigfoot Center or my site, you know, Cliff Berrickman, and you'll see me there. Awesome. Thank you so much, Cliff. Bye-bye. Anytime, Andrew.